Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor. I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Oberta Dicta. In this episode, myself Rachel Sherlock and my colleague Owen Malloy spoke with barrister and Bloomsbury online author Stephen Spearin. We had a great conversation with Stephen Spearin, who of course writes our monthly wills and probate update for Bloomsbury Online. It was all about corona and the courts. He took us through what impact the various social distancing measures have had on the courts and also discussed the pros and cons of online trials. And of course, if you want to follow more of Stephen's work, you can find it on our Wills and Probate online service. For a free trial, contact us at bpireland at bloomsbury.com. We hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to episode six of Obiter Dicta, the podcast brought to you by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. In this episode, we're bringing you an interview with Stephen Spearin, barrister at law and author of the Bloomsbury Professional Irish Wills and Probate Law Update. Stephen, how are you? Very well, thank you. And uh, how have you been adapting to life in this post-COVID world? I'd, I'd imagine work is, is a bit different for you these days. Uh, work is limited and work is slowing down uh, because, as most barristers have discovered, uh, uh, they're not as much office space as they might have thought they were. And being on your feet in court is very much a novelty these days. Um, so I think people are discovering what their family looks like again. So that's, that's where we're at. Okay, and I suppose that the first, or I suppose, raft of restrictions were announced by the Taoiseach on the 12th of March. And we all know what that imported for, for everyone in terms of social distancing and working from home. But how exactly were the courts impacted by that? Well, I think if you look at what the initial address by the Taoiseach was on 12th of March and then subsequent address after that, he never once mentioned um, the courts or legal professionals in either of those updates. So going back to the 12th of March, it was quite a vague and ambiguous message and related really only to schools and educational bodies and cultural bodies. So lawyers and the court system were a bit at a loss on the 12th of March to decide what they were going to do. But if you look at the main thing, which was people took from that announcement was that indoor gatherings of more than 100 people were, were banned, essentially, which meant that many courthouses around the country, including the four courts, which is a large complex, were no-go zones or were supposed to be no-go zones for the majority of the population. So the court service had to look at how they're going to run court lists in circumstances where you could have a large group of people in a packed courtroom. And I think they moved very quickly in that regard as the Monday list, which would have been on the 16th of March, um, were staggered. Some of the the shorter matters were adjourned generally, which meant that they were just put back to another date to be determined. The following day, the Friday the 13th, I was in court myself that day, and you could already get a sense that many people were packing up and getting ready to, to move out for the medium to long term. And the place, the law library itself, was very much a, a an emptying out uh, space. 
um, it's very few people around. So I think for the court system, they reacted quite good to what was really an unknown aspect of how this was going to affect the legal system and the legal practitioners and cases listed for hearing. And was was there a sense, uh, or I'm, I'm not sure of the exact guideline, but was there a sense that more urgent cases would still be allowed to proceed at that time? Or or what, what was the, the rule around that? Or was there any rule? Well, there was no rule. And I mean, everybody that's faced with some kind of legal hearing will see that as an urgent matter. And it will be very important to each and every individual if they ever, ever are in court. So, but to take it back a notch to decide what's urgent, I think the only guidance we got in terms of matters that were urgent came from the president of the high court and the president of the circuit court. And they were subsequently explained in later updates. But if we look at things that were considered urgent, with obviously the first thing you'd look at is criminality. Crime doesn't stop because the virus has appeared. And with that becomes getting dangerous people off the streets. Criminality would obviously be an urgent matter that needs to keep being looked at regardless of whatever restrictions are in place. But then if you look at things like family matters where domestic violence is an issue, clearly that's an urgent matter. Or for example, the rights of vulnerable people, elderly people, for example, whose needs need to be looked after by the court system or by the person who's been given the authority to make decisions for them. So they're the, the, the classic, I suppose, urgent cases at the time being. The President of the High Court also mentioned corporate insolvency is an issue which needs to be looked at at the moment and would consider that urgent. But as we've seen in the, over the last two or three weeks, nearly all aspects have been adjourned generally to a date to be determined. So, And the court's offices have only are going to deal with urgent matters and you need an appointment to make some kind of application or an appointment to, to issue proceedings in these urgent cases. I think urgent cases can be limited very much to criminal matters, family matters and situations where somebody's rights need to be vindicated or restricted. And in some sense, are some of those cases actually more pressing at the moment? I think if you take the first aspect, which is crime, crime is always going to be urgent I don't think you can differentiate that at this particular time. I don't think crime becomes more pressing now. It goes on. However, when you look at family law situations, not every family household is a happy household, unfortunately. Uh, And sometimes these unhappy households get respite by children going to school or parents uh, going off to work. We're now in a situation where unhappy families are being forced to reside together indefinitely without any kind of respite. So, I'd be unsurprised if there was no rise in domestic violence or the need for protection orders, such as safety orders or barring orders. So this is an, an unfortunate aspect, which we imagine we'll see in the coming weeks or we might have seen already. But I think families being forced to reside together is difficult for everybody, but I think it's particularly difficult when it's a very unhappy or unstable family environment. And situations like, like that, I, I suppose, are, are very different. We've seen our author, Keith Walsh, he, he's been making a number of, of tweets and statements about this particular issue and the need for more guidance in this area. So we'd hopefully get him on to maybe elaborate on that a bit more. But I suppose moving to the more recent uh, stricter set of restrictions that were announced on the 27th of March, I think we were given about two and a half hours uh, notice before these became effective. And the court service 
reacted very quickly in response to that and issued a group of new measures on the 29th of March in response. Uh, could you please outline maybe what, what's involved in these and what they meant for, for the courts and for barristers? Well, the first thing I'd say is that, again, the ambiguity prevailed because legal practitioners didn't know if they were considered an essential service or not and whether the court service was going to continue to run and whether solicitors, for example, were required to attend their place of work or whether barristers were permitted to attend the law library before courts complex or the various court complexes around the country. So that had to be clarified and it has been that legal practitioners are an essential service and can continue to, to go to work taking particular precaution when doing so. But in terms of the court's reaction, again, it, because they reacted to the earlier restrictions on the 12th of March, there was more of a formal um, plan put in place. So, for example, most matters were adjourned generally to a date to be determined. In terms of criminal matters, persons who were on bail weren't required to attend any further hearings their lawyer would attend in their place. Accused persons appeared uh, by way of video link. Members of the press were allowed to attend, but they've said that uh, only bona fide members of the press could attend and uh, media outlets were asked to send as few uh, representatives as possible. And everyone again was reminded that to respect social distancing and was suggested that there may be limits as to the amount of persons that could be permitted to attend a courtroom at any one time. In terms of the court offices around the country, it was moved to an appointment-only basis, and then only certain applications were going to be dealt with. So in terms of the circuit court applications for protection orders, uh, barring orders, emergency barring orders. So the things that we've mentioned already, those difficult domestic abuse matters and, and difficult family law environments. In terms of the high court, then, we had, again, restrictions. Most matters were adjourned generally. And the essential business was deemed to be things like applications for bail, habeas corpus applications where somebody's alleging that their incarceration is unlawful, people seeking injunctive relief, examinerships, which we alluded to earlier in terms of corporate insolvency, uh, urgent wardship matters, which are matters where vulnerable adults' rights need to be protected uh, are looked at. Um, and then urgent judicial review applications, and then finally issues of where proceedings may potentially be statute barred to time limits uh, may about to be expired. So those types of cases will continue to be uh, looked at in terms of the restrictions. So I think they've done quite a lot, but the prevailing message is that everybody should stay at home and, and, re and work remotely where possible and attempt to avoid attending any kind of court building so, for example, it is possible to agree aspects on consent. So, for example, uh, adjournments can be agreed by consent and emailed to the various offices. Or if a case has been settled and a compromise has been reached, the terms of that can be emailed. There is a, a progress being made in terms of working remotely, yes. And on that line, I believe on the 31st of March, a statement released on behalf of the Chief Justice, Mr. Frank Clark, seemed to indicate that remote hearings were being trialled with a view to getting them up and running by the time term re resumes. I think we were just discussing how that date may have changed by now, but what are your thoughts on, on this, on, on video trials? Well, certain trials already um, are conducted by way of video link. So, for example, certain witnesses will give evidence via video link, for example, um, minors or complainants in sexual offences uh, cases, or oftentimes witnesses can give evidence if they're out of the jurisdiction. So, 
there, there's been a certain amount of video link used already. Last year, the Supreme Court began delivering judgments uh, on live television. So there has been a slight move. If we were to go to the full way at looking at hearings via video link where you might have opposing lawyers in their home offices, a judge in his own home office, and it was limited just to the lawyers and the judge, that would be fine. But I don't, I don't think it's possible to run any kind of jury trial remotely. I don't think it's possible to to run uh, certain trials where a witness can be given via video link. But that then brings into question whether the skills of cross-examination can be used because it's it's one thing chatting to somebody via video link. It's, it's certainly different uh, chatting them in person. It's very difficult to judge a person's demeanor or the manner in which they're answering questions via video link. So I think... I think some criminal practitioners would have grave reservations about their advocacy skills being somewhat limited if they were to, to tr- attempt to run trials via video link. So while, while it certainly is uh, maybe the buzzword of the moment, there, what you're saying is that there would certainly be some downsides to, to moving totally online for the courts as, say, someone like Richard Suskind would be advocating for. I certainly think some cases can be run via video link. So cases that are primarily decided on affidavit evidence, I think that's that should start operating. Um, short matters can be done via video link, but there certainly would have to be certain very strict protocol in place as to what cases are suitable for, for remote hearings and what aren't. I don't think all cases can be, um, and I know colleagues would have reservations about it, but we, because of the uncertainty as to how long this pandemic is going to last, Court business can't be put on hold indefinitely, so something will have to start up again and, and, and things will have to be done to try and get the wheels of justice in motion again. And obviously there's an aspect of this which is that justice must not only be done but seen to be done as well. Do you think there would be any benefit in starting a court service YouTube channel and uploading the judgments there as they've done in the UK? I wouldn't be inclined to follow that, but in terms of what we can do here, as I said, the Supreme Court started delivering judgments on live television last year. I, I can't see any difficulty with doing that again. And um, we already have Oroctus TV, which live streams Leinster House, the Shannon and the Dole, and the various Oroctus committees. So rather than have a YouTube channel, I think certainly things can be done in line with the state broadcaster RTE to expand on and maybe look at Oroctus TV and how that works and maybe use that as a, a template or a, a good example of how we can bring the court system to the people in terms of utilising information communications technology. I think it's quite easy to record judgments and deliver them online. I don't think it needs to be done using a third-party platform like YouTube. I'm, I'm sure the court service have the ability to upload their own videos or set up an interface somewhere else. But I definitely think it's something that could be done. It was definitely included in in the update by the statement of the Chief Justice and the President on the 31st of March that uh, judges would use the time to catch up on outstanding judgments. And so perhaps there is a time when the next few weeks where we will see judges being delivered online. And I think most practitioners would welcome that. That's really, really very interesting. 
just I suppose maybe maybe to round it off and, and bring in some of your wills and probate expertise, I think we were speaking recently about the new law society guidelines on making or amending a will in the era of social distancing. And I imagine witnessing and signing a will from, from two meters away would be quite difficult to nigh on impossible. Um, have you had a chance to look at these new, new guidelines and have you any thoughts on them? I have looked at the guidelines, yes. And I think I think the common sense approach is being adopted by the law society. And, I, and I'd welcome that in the sense that particular caution should be always be taken when attempting to take instructions from a testator with a view of executing a will. I think the law society has, in their guidelines has been at pains to remind people that safety must be paramount by maintaining social distancing or physical distancing whenever dealing with clients. But the logistics of that is, is, all, is clearly going to be a challenge. So um, in terms of taking instructions, they suggested taking instructions on the telephone. And that's assuming that the person on the other end of the call is giving instructions of their own free will and doesn't have any particular family member behind them and with their arms being twisted or being under uh, any particular undue influence, which I think hasn't been looked at and would always be a concern, particularly when you have elderly clients who are afraid, uh, who think they might be doing best by their family, but there might be an element of pressure there. And they've suggested that attending offices should be avoided in all circumstances, but there could be some circumstances when if an office has the facility of a large conference room where physical distancing can be maintained and it could be possible to execute the will execute the will in the office. But in terms of taking instructions, they've definitely maintained doing that via telephone. And um, my concerns really with making wills in this difficult period is that it's quite easy to draft up a will, it's quite easy to give instructions in a will, but the actual execution of the will is the aspect that is often most challenged. And it seems quite simple, but and it might be simple to legal practitioners, but for a will to be valid, it has to be signed by the testator and witnessed by two independent persons who then must sign their own name to say that the signature on the will is that of the testator. And I think this is an aspect that many people can get wrong. So, for example, you might get your son to sign your will and because you might use him as a witness, but then you intended giving your son the entirety of your estate and because he's witnessed the will, his gift is completely invalid. So your best intentions have been stymied by something unknown or something that seemed quite insignificant. So again, I, I would certainly have concerns in relation to witnessing Will's aspects of undue influence. And I don't know how a, a solicitor can take the decision as to whether the person has capacity or not to make a will. It's very difficult, as I said already, to to make a judgment on, on how somebody is, is behaving if you can't see them in person or or ascertain their manner and, and th their behaviour as to how they're responding to questions. So I can understand many people are worried at the moment in terms of they want to make a will, but it seems like an easy thing, but really there should be a considerable amount of precaution taken when, to make sure it's done correctly. That's really fascinating to see how we're having to adapt in these strange times but thank you very much for coming onto the podcast with us we really appreciate you taking the time and giving us these updates thank you you're very welcome thanks Stephen. 
this has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.